Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Amos 4, 1 through 13. This is the word of God. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks. And you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Harmon, declares the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened, and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees the locusts devoured. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses. And I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And you were as a brand plucked out of the burning. Yet you did not Return to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. Our Father, we thank you for this day we have that we can gather together and study your word. And may we be enlightened by these words of Amos and understand to a much greater degree the love that you have for us and the commitment you've made to us, but also our need to respond in kind and worship and love to you. So bless our time together this day as we come before you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Friedrich Nietzsche was a very well-known German atheist philosopher, and he wrote a number of books, one of which was called The Twilight of Idols. And in this Twilight of Idols, he had one little pithy quote there in which he said, 
that there are more idols in the world than there are realities. And by that he means is that humanity has been able to make an idol out of nearly everything that exists. Now Nietzsche, of course, was an atheist, and his main target was 19th century German religion, Christianity. And in many ways, he may have been right about what he said about that. The idols that had even inhabited the minds of many Christians at that time. But as an atheist, what did he do? In being iconoclastic and destroying all sorts of idols, what's his natural next step? To create new ones. And for Nietzsche, the idols that he created was, again, what he called the Ubermensch, humanity himself, the superman. And in that, he said that what humanity needs to do is to get rid of all the gods, get rid of its Christian god, and instead pursue a religion of humanity in which we all become all that we can become, be what we can be. He criticized Christianity for its ethics. He called it a slave morality because as Christians, we believe that even the trials of this life that we go through will be overcome in the next life. And so we can bear through the difficulties and trials and suffering of this life because there's a greater world in which we're going to spend with God. The problem, he said, is there is no greater world. And so if you don't fight through your troubles today and have happiness and joy today, then you never, ever will have it. And so that was Nietzsche's philosophy. And it really wasn't anything new. That's something that's been going on through the centuries with humanity for all time. Alexis de Tocqueville famously wrote a book when he came to America called Democracy in America. In 1830, he came to America. He saw what Americans were, what they had become. And he talked about their freedom. He talked about their prosperity. And as he does, he had this sort of concluding thought in which he talked about this strange melancholy that overcomes the inhabitants of this land. Because, he said, in their desire for prosperity, they were looking for happiness, the pursuit of happiness. And they thought that prosperity and freedom would bring them that happiness. But de Tocqueville concluded that really the temporary joys of this life can never fill the heart. And his point is that all of us as humans strive to find a way of making ourselves joyful, making ourselves happy, finding something that fills our hearts, and even the temporary joys of this life will fail in that. And what that leads to ultimately is a sense of loss, a sense, a sense of despair, that somehow we got everything we ever asked for, everything we ever wanted, and it still was not enough. There's something still missing. When Amos writes... He's pointing to the Israelites saying essentially the same thing. Now, we think about what Paul did some centuries after Amos, seven centuries later. Paul is now on his missionary tours, and he's going throughout Asia Minor and around the world. He goes to Greece, and what does he see there? But the temples of his age, the temple in Athens, on the Acropolis, the Parthenon, in which Athena was housed. Athena, the great god of wisdom, the goddess of wisdom. Besides the goddess of wisdom in Athena, there were other goddesses, like Aphrodite, the goddess of love and beauty. There was Ares, the god of war. Uh, there was Artemis, the god of wealth and fertility and prosperity. We've seen the goddess the, of our Artemis in Diana, in Ephesus, in our recent study of Ephesus. These were the idols and the gods that Paul wrote about in his age. And he does... So in such a way as he's challenging his world, saying that those gods are false dead gods. So Acts chapter 17 is really 
a discussion of that, an explanation that these are false and dead gods. And when we read Paul, when we read of these goddesses and gods of the ancient world, we too easily condemn the idols and gods of their age. And yet at the same time, we can have blinders in our own eyes to the idols of our age, to that which distracts us from our true worship of God. And so if the ancient world had its gods and goddesses to beauty and wisdom and wealth and prosperity, we have essentially the same thing today. If we were to go back to ancient Greece, we might see there all these beautiful temples, these great large structures, which are magnificent to see in themselves simply from an architectural viewpoint. But if you were to bring an ancient Greek philosopher to modern America, he would look around and perhaps say, you have essentially the same things. You have your god of wisdom, and so you've built your great universities. You have your god to money, and so you build your great downtowns with your banks and, and all of that. You have your entertainment, so you've got these great stadiums that you attend events at on Sunday mornings. Thousands gather together to cheer and celebrate. We all have idols and gods in our life. Now, nobody today would kneel down before a statue of Aphrodite and, and pray to Aphrodite, but even in modern America, we do have a beauty cult. We have influencers on TikTok and other social media that influence the lives of millions and millions of people. That if you just did this, you would have more wealth, you would have more happiness, you'd look better, be more beautiful. And in the end, we see the consequences of that. Now, nobody today either would burn incense to Artemis. Yet at the same time, we make sacrifices to pursuing wealth and things in this life that we, in fact, have our own version of child sacrifices and neglect. And so in the ancient world, there was a continual pursuit of the gods to satiate the desires of the gods, to keep them happy. The bloodthirsty gods would come after them. And in many, many ways, the idols of our age are just the same. They drive us. Now, when Amos writes his book here, and we've seen a number of it, it's really a collection of different sermons and poems. Chapter 3 is itself a contained sermon. Chapter 4 is a sermon, and chapter 5 and 6 is a third sermon. These are the messages that Amos brings, and he brings these to the northern kingdom of Israel. And as he does, he does so in such a way to challenge where they're at. Now, the Israelites in the ancient world had been put under a covenant by God. They were to follow God. There were rules to follow within the covenant. At the same time, the Israelites, as all of us do, begin to set up our own idols, our own things that become more important to us than God himself. And so Amos' message, as we've seen, is to come to the northern kingdom of Israel and challenge them for where they're at and to say that you need to reject gods and idols that you set up and instead pursue the true God. And so we read again, and we'll begin in verse 4, because this begins this sense of their failure to follow the true God. In verse 4, come to Bethel and transgress to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days, Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them. For so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. He's talking here about their desires 
to pursue a religion that's become their own self-made religion. So our first point today is the self-invented worship of false gods. The Israelites had invented their own false gods. Now we know throughout Israelite history they were always being challenged by the difficulty of syncretism. God had revealed himself as Yahweh, their one God alone. But many of them had pagan religions around them, pagan religions in their history, and they dragged that same pagan background into their current life and religious practices. And so many of these Israelites now began to focus on things that were not truly God-honoring in the way God wanted them to live. And so he describes them and their offerings. Now, what we see described here is really a pursuit, a vigorous pursuit of religion in a sense to impress the gods and even more to impress other people. And so notice again what he says, come to Bethel and transgress. This is this paradoxical, sarcastic way in which Amos writes to the Israelites and says, you want to keep sinning? Then you go ahead. Continue to go to Bethel and offer your sacrifices. Continue to transgress in that way. And so this seemingly call to worship is really a condemnation of their own pursuit of sin. And so he writes to them and continue to do that. Go to Gilgal. Gilgal was not in Israel. It's down in the southern kingdom of Judah. And so it's not quite as clear where he's getting Gilgal from here in this except that to all of Israel, all the Israelites, north and south, they knew that Gilgal was a place where Joshua and the tribes exiting Egypt came through and started there. So from the beginning of where you were, your first steps in this promised land, even go there. And again, offer your false sacrifices to your gods. So they thought they were pleasing God by the things that they did. Amos says what you're really doing is heaping transgression on transgression and sin upon sin. He says, bring your sacrifices every morning. Now, Leviticus chapters 1 to 5 tells them that as a family, you would bring your sacrifices once a year. And he says, you can even go every morning if you want to. It will still do you no good. Every time you show up with a false sense of who God is, and again, a false worship of God, you're not impressing the God who exists, but you're simply creating for yourself greater condemnation. So bring your sacrifices every year if you wish. Bring your tithes every three days. Again, Leviticus 1 to 5 talks about the tithes that they're bringing. Chapter 7, bring it once every three years. They could bring it every three days if they wished. They thought they were impressing God, but Amos says you're not impressing God at all. Offer sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened. But notice what he says again in verse 5, and proclaim free will offerings and publish them. So now Amos gets to the real motivation they had, and that's that they were bragging, boasting in their own religious devotion, whatever that might be. They wanted others to see and to notice who they were. Now we know from what we've heard the past two weeks in Lars and Bentley's sermons and as we read Amos, that there really was a bifurcated people in Israel. There were the wealthy on top that had the money, that had the power, that had control of the lands and the farms and, and all of that. Then there were the, the poor underneath them. And so while the poor were suffering, the wealthy were showing their ostentatious celebration of their own false gods before others. And we often see that not only in the ancient world, but today also. Those with extraordinary amounts of money that we can't even comprehend able to, on the one hand, prescribe policies for you, but not for me. 
And so, you know, we've got those who condemn, we'll talk about, you know, I get the politics of this, but like climate change, global warming, and they do so by flying in their private jets to the places they want to go to do so. You see, it's for you, not for me. And that's the same thing Israel had back then. And so they could give in such a way to be seen by others so that the poor among them would look and say, well, maybe he's not such a bad guy after all. But when you have that much wealth, your gift doesn't really hurt anyway. And it's certainly not impressing God. And so Amos challenges those in the land who pursued this sort of religion and says, you keep on doing it. It will get you nowhere. But then he turns from that. And he talks about what really is required. And we'll see this later. But what God requires of us is true worship. I want to just read a few verses from Psalm 34. What was or could have been in the minds of those Israelites when they approached God? What could they have known about what God required of them? Now, 200 years or more before Amos would preach, the Psalms were being written. And one Psalm is Psalm 34. And of this, David talks about an incident in his life where he was chased by Saul. We'll see this in Samuel uh, later. But this incident in which he then turned to God. Chapter 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. If the ancient Israelites had followed the words of David in this psalm, they wouldn't have pursued their own gods, but instead would have had the true God in mind. Verse 4, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. And then in verse 8, he has this invitation to those who are in need. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. What David knew as he wrote this psalm was based on the promises that God had made to Israel in his covenant with them. That if you pursue God and are faithful to God and obey God and live accordingly, that God will bless the people and bless the land and bless their lives. And so if they had kept in mind the words of Psalm 34, even as they lived their lives, God would have had a way to reach them, to change them. But as we come to Amos now, hundreds of years of bad kings in the northern kingdom of Israel had now led to such a degradation of their morals and their lives that now punishment was all that was left. And so as we come now to verse uh, 6 through 11, we see the self-deluded rejection and, and of warnings from God. God had been warning them. And as Linda read these passages, you saw Amos name five particular punishments that came on the kingdom because of the rejection. And as we read this, we wonder, why would God bring judgment on them in this way? There may be two good reasons to see the consequence of this. 
if we keep it in mind, let's go look at Deuteronomy 28 real quick. I just want to get this covenant in mind with you. If you can keep your place in Amos, I know it's hard to find, but find Deuteronomy also. Deuteronomy chapter 28 is a central passage of God's covenant with Israel in which God said, this is your obligations in the covenant, and this is a series of my obligations and duty to you. And if you remain faithful to the covenant, I will remain faithful and bless you. If you are disobedient to the covenant, God says, I will remain faithful and discipline you. And so God is always faithful to the covenant he made with Israel. Now notice in chapter 28, and we'll read the first six verses. We read, and if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, be careful to do all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall you be uh, the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your uh, cattle the increase of your herds and your, uh, the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. So the positive side of the covenant was to say, you remain faithful, Israel, and I will bless your food, your home, your life. You will have what you need. You'll have protection in the land. These blessings continue from verse 7 on down to verse 14. But start now in verse 15. God says there's a second side to this covenant. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall you be uh, your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. All right, so you got in mind God's covenant. You do the right things, you obey the covenant, blessings follow. You disobey God and his covenant, and these curses follow. That have two purposes. On the one hand, it's to warn. You've fallen out of God's covenant, and that's why these calamities are befallen you. It's to give a chance to repent, that's the purpose of this. But in the end, if you continue to reject God, Amos says, Noah, uh, Moses says, if you continue to reject God, then the consequences of the covenant follow. And so as we come now over to Amos 4, verse 6, we see a number of things being developed. It's basically a recitation of Israel's recent history. And so he writes in verse 6, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities, and lack of bread in all your places. Now, what's a cleanness of teeth? Sounds like a good thing, a dentist would say. Your teeth are clean because you're not eating. You have no food to eat. I love the way the Israelite poets and prophets phrase things. You have a cleanness of teeth because you're not eating. There's a famine in the land, a lack of bread in all your places. So there's a famine recently in Israel's history. And throughout its history, you can read in in uh, 2 Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, these stories that go through Israel's history of discipline of the Israelites because they disobeyed the covenant. But that's why they had clean teeth, a famine in the land, and even still, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. 
Those words, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord, a refrain that appears five times throughout these words of Amos. A reminder that you had this as an opportunity to turn to God, but you didn't. Now, when there's famine in the land, many would say, God, we need your intervention. Instead, the wealthy who control the society basically said, I'm unaffected by it. I have sufficient wealth to live above these particular calamities. I will survive. And that's why they didn't feel the need uh, to turn to God themselves. Then there's a drought in verses 7 to 8. I, will, I also withheld the rain from you. When there were yet three months to the harvest, I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain, and the field in which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. And again the refrain, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. So this rain comes, he says, and the rains in Israel come between February, March, and April. And with those rains, the harvest would be in May and June. And so the three months prior to the harvest, it would stop raining. A drought would set in the land. And, it's, and God says that there was rain in some cities, but not in others. And so those who were in the cities that didn't have rain uh, would wander other places. Now, if you've been to Israel, I know many of you have, uh, you know that there are certain places where rivers may flow, uh, the Jordan River in particular, but in the highlands, the central background of the land of Israel, uh, there's often not a lot of water, not a lot of rain. And so they would build cisterns to hold the water that did come down in rain to keep it for when they needed it. They would have it to irrigate, to drink, to take care of themselves. But when a drought sets in and there's no water, and we know this in Southwest America, what a drought means is we see even Lake Mead itself drying up now. Uh, but in Israel, it was catastrophic to them. So they lacked the water. And some people in the cities that had no rain would go to other cities. And when they did, there would be an influx of people into the place that may have had some water, but now not enough water to meet the needs of all these people. And so those who didn't have water, didn't have rain, now suffered along with those who even did have water because there still was not enough for everybody. And this is a calamity that came upon them. And you can imagine the feelings that some of those people may have had when they saw all of us going through the same trial, we can deal with it. But when others have water and we don't, it becomes even a more tragic uh, difficulty in life. Years ago when we uh, lived in California, my wife and I, and uh, we had two kids, uh, we were there during what we know as the, the Northridge earthquake. We lived in Granada Hills, which is just a mile from uh, North Hills, uh, Northridge, where the earthquake epicenter was. And so we were right there at the, the, the center of the epicenter. And when the earthquake hit Los Angeles, it took out power and water and gas and utilities and everything from the entire city. Now, it took time to repair things. And the LA Times still landed on my porch soon thereafter, every morning, and they had a map in the LA Times which showed where power and water and gas had now been restored. And it seemed to be restored to the distant places where the wealthy lived, far from the epicenter. But the, the, the circle of, of those still suffering got smaller and smaller and smaller until it landed basically on my house. And only Rick and Deanne in Granada Hills still had no water and power. While the rest, and you see, now the emotions begin to change. I could live with it when we're all suffering together, but when it's only me, it becomes a different psychology entirely. 
And for the Israelites, they saw rain on some peoples, but not on mine. That became a difficulty for them. And so we see this drought that comes on the land. And then crop failure in verse 9. I struck you with blight and mildew. Your many gardens, you saw the lands that they had, but even their own personal gardens like many of you have. Your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. And again, Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26 talk about the covenant and say that if you don't obey God, then there will be blight and mildew in your crops and your land. There will be a crop failure. And so the Israelites, had they read and known Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26, would have known the reason we have drought, blight, and mildew and crop failure is because that is a discipline coming down from God. Yet nevertheless, what's he say? Again, the refrain, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Then a pestilence in verse 10. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. Now imagine that. God is now punishing the Israelites in the same measure that he punished the Egyptians, God's enemies, some years before. The pestilence described here may have been the bubonic plague. Uh, it may have been some other pestilence we may get from uh, the book of Exodus as God punished the Egyptians there. But whatever it was, it became again something else that punished the Israelites. And then in verse 10, continues, I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses and made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. And while the covenant, God said, will protect you from foreign enemies, now God reminds them that your past judgment has already come upon you and the wars you're facing and the, Assyri the Syrians first to the north and the uh, Assyrians further north and to the east would soon thereafter penetrate the land of Israel and carry away the northern tribes of Israel. That would come upon them. That would be their discipline. When Amos preached these words, the Israelites would have known about the Assyrians. They were already a menace in the region, the greater Mesopotamian area, the Babylonians, the Assyrians and these peoples would come down continually for a thousand years before this point in history. They knew about the Assyrians. What's interesting, the time that Amos writes this, uh, is that this same message of the covenant would be applied to Israel in the time of Jesus and Paul. Yet the, 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 the kingdom, the empire, that would persecute the Israelites at that time would be the Romans. The Romans at the time that Amos writes, in the year 750-ish B.C., were themselves nothing more than Remus and Romulus sitting on the Palatine Hill in Rome by themselves. Rome had not even yet been founded. The mythological founding of Rome in the year 753 B.C. was nothing when Amos wrote these words. Yet at that same moment, Israel would not have known, but centuries later, a people they never heard about, never would have known, would be then the empire that would persecute them for their failure to follow God's covenant. And so God's judgment would come. And again, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Then verse 11, I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning. This is a picture. Sodom and Gomorrah, of course, destroyed by fire. 
We're not exactly sure all that Amos is getting at here, but in Israel's recent history, he says, there's a punishment that came upon you, and many of you who survived are like a, a, a smoldering stick pulled out of the fire, a brand taken out of the fire. Others have been defeated, destroyed, and killed. You survived, but even barely. And then again, the refrain comes again, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. So you see continually, Amos reminding the people that God had a message for them. Turn to God, follow God. But even still, they continue to reject God. They continue to turn their own way, do their own thing, even in the light of the curses of the covenant that God brings down, designed to turn them to God, they instead turn away from God. And so the actions of the people are contravening now the promise of God, denying what God promised. And so Amos wraps up this second sermon of chapter 4 with these words. And we see here that every choice we make has an end result. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thoughts, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. When Amos writes this, he's reminding them that judgment is coming. And that's a message for all of time, not just in Amos's day, but for ours as well. There is a judgment day coming. Now, in response to that, we can do one of two things. We can, on the one hand, turn away from God, and we see this self-reliance before the holiness of God. R.C. Sproul writes, Every sin is an act of cosmic treason, a futile attempt to dethrone God in his sovereign authority. And that's so true. Even the sin of worshiping diligently and vigorously a false god is simply heaping condemnation upon ourselves again. And so Israelites' pursuit of their own idols is now bringing God's judgment. Now, we live in, again in a world in which we can make our own idols. A TV show that's been popular now for 25 years, American Idol. People love to have idols. They love to have those that they idolize, that they think are so great. And this is true of all of us. We can think of the idols that motivate us. On the one hand, it may be uh, beauty. And so we have those that teach us how to pursue beauty. It may be our brains. We think that if we just pursue more knowledge, we can in life have an ultimate happiness. And in fact, that was a common thing during the uh, early, 19th uh, early 1900s, the 20th century. H.G. Uh, Wells wrote his Outlines of History in which he described history as the progress of mankind. And it's an idea he got from Jean-Jacques Rousseau who talked about the innate moral goodness of humanity. That really people are pretty good. And so you think about the world in the early 1900s. We have inventions of technology, trains and automobiles and things coming along. Things were getting better. Indoor plumbing, eventually indoor lighting. How much more could we ever ask for? Progress will make everything good for us. And so people pursue that. And so H.G. Wells talks about this pursuit of the good life. And then other writers in the 1930s might talk about the fact that this is all sort of falling apart. You think about the world in the 1930s with the rise of fascism in Italy and in Germany and in Spain and all this going on. And then the idea became clearly that if we just pursued education and training and we taught people good living, good morality, 
that we could educate our way into future prosperity. And then the war came, World War II, destroyed so much. And again, you went from the roaring 20s through the dirty 30s of, uh, of uh, the, the Dust Bowl and the famine in the land, and then the trials of the 40s through war, and people realized that humanity may have no hope. And that's where they left themselves, wondering, is there a God anywhere? Is there a hope anywhere for humanity? So we can set up our idols. And in the same way that the ancient world had their gods of, of, of sex, of prosperity, of the nation, everything had its own God there. Professions had gods. They had gods set up to everything in the same way that we often do. They had gods that, that, that designed and drove everything they did, that, that they did. But as we see this in history, we see a parallel with Amos, that those gods all fail. There is something missing in all of that. What we need instead is to turn to God. We see then Amos' call to repentance. And if we will simply submit ourselves to God's grace, there is hope. When Amos writes... He writes to these people and he reminds them first that you are God's chosen people. And we remember the story of the Bible through Genesis and Exodus that through Abraham and the covenant God made, he made them his people. He said, you follow me, follow the covenant and I will bless you. And we see the life of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Eventually they're moved down to Egypt as first a means of God's protection, but then out of Egypt into the promised lands as God's intent and purpose to establish them as his people. And then the people soon begin to deny God. We see also the creator God that makes everything. As Jeff mentioned this morning, the glories of the natural world. We see now images coming from the James Webb telescope, the magnificence of a universe that's so magnificently large it's impossible for us to, to mentally fathom. The beauty of what God has created and still, people study and look at the images of, of Webb and reject the God. They think instead about the great design of their own technology and reject the God that's revealed through that technology. We have the gods of money. The ancient Romans had uh, uh, Jupiter and Juno and Minerva. Juno, the wife of Jupiter, had uh, a second name, uh, Juno Moneta, Moneta. It was the, the treasury of Rome. We have our word money and mint come from the Latin word moneta. Our money is in the same way that Juno was the Roman god of wealth, we have our own god of money that's what? That's our security against adversity. That becomes our way of preventing the calamities of this life to fall upon us. And so we believe as long as we're wealthy and sustain ourselves, that we can ride it out as we see the economy around us beginning to shake a little bit or a lot. Inflation now 9.1%, things going on like this. We begin to worry about whether or not our own financial well-being will really carry us through to the end. What David said in Psalm 34, what Amos is saying here is, in times of difficulty, in times of trials, turn to God Look again to your Savior. Look again to the Father who's promised us. Now, we again make idols. And the Bible talks about idols in many different ways. It talks about the fact that we love idols, that we trust idols, that we obey idols. And, and the Bible talks about these using these three great metaphors. And the first is our love. 
We love our idols. Uh, a man named James K.A. Uh, Smith wrote a book, uh, you, are, you Are What You uh, Love. And basically it's a description that the things we love most become what we are. And so what God says to Hosea, through Hosea to Israel is, you've basically loved yourselves, abandoning God himself, and so you are now, he equates idolatry with adultery. Rather than loving God, being faithful to him, you're now rejecting him, being faithful to what you choose, other things. And so we love things. We, we trust in things. Idols are things we trust in. We trust in them to protect us, to sustain us. God says, don't trust in them. Instead, trust in God himself. And now we know, trust in Christ himself as our Savior. The political metaphor uh, of obeying. When Jesus came as the Lord, and Paul began to preach throughout the Roman Empire, Jesus is Lord, what he was saying is the political God of Caesar is no longer the true God. Never was. But Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And that's when the Christians began to get in trouble with the Romans. Everybody else was willing to say Caesar is Lord among many lords. You could have many different gods. But the Jews for a time, but in particular the Christians, were ostracized and persecuted because they would say Jesus is Lord. And we've seen how in the early church, even through the time of Polycarp and afterwards, those Christians who were, continued to emphasize that would suffer persecution and die in the arena because of their faith. This message of Amos comes to us as a reminder that we have to turn to God. There's a judgment day coming. Prepare to meet your God. And all of us will one day face the judgment day. And we're either going to be on God's side, joyously celebrating his return, or we can meet God as an adversary on the battlefield. Israel chose to meet God as an adversary. Amos warned against that, and I would warn against that also. Instead, greet God as a friend who loves us and sent Christ as our friend to be our Savior. Let's stand as we pray and dismiss. Our Father, as we come together and consider this word from Amos, this word that he delivered to the Israelites so long ago, we see that it has modern application to where we're at today. It's so easy for us to set up idols of our own imagination, counterfeit gods that we pursue instead of pursuing you, the true God. But may our hearts and minds be again turned to you 